Well, now come to um, the book of Acts with me, chapter 4. And as you come to the book of Acts, remember that you are looking at the record of the beginning of what we are a part of. It is a worldwide phenomenon now 20 centuries old, and it has stretched and is stretching to every people and tongue and tribe and nation on the planet. The book of Acts is the history of approximately the first 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all about a, a, a time of transition. It's the historical record of the massive transition from the time of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. This is the historical record of it. If you want the theological record of it, go read the book of Hebrews, especially chapters 8, 9, and 10. It is the transition from Israel as the focal point of the work of God on earth to the church as His chosen instrument. And just a few years after the close of the book of Acts, uh, the Romans came through and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, putting a, a divine exclamation point on the close of the Old Covenant. Acts begins with 120 devoted followers of Jesus, all of them Jews in Jerusalem. And by the end of this book, we see the church thriving and including many thousands of both Jews and Gentiles who believed in Jesus. And by the time of the close of the book of Acts, um, Gentiles outnumbered Jews significantly in the church. And through the years recorded in Acts and shortly afterward, we also have going on this continued progressive revelation from God about His design for the church. This is a whole new era in His kingdom plan. The king came. He was rejected. He was crucified. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. He's coming again, but in the meantime, the kingdom of God continues to be built, but it's a whole different time. The king is, is enthroned, but not present. And so we have this growth of the message of the kingdom of God in the form of the gospel that now spreads and travels. And through the time especially of the Apostle Paul, but also uh, Peter and James and Jude and the author of, of, uh, of Hebrews, we have this um, further and further revelation of this design of God for this age, which we call the, the church, the, the, the body of Christ. Jesus predicted in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and it is unfolding as we see through this, um, through this book, that the Holy Spirit would come and then they would become His witnesses and they would take the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea, that era, that area, then to the uh, Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles, to the remotest parts of the earth. Well, we've already seen Peter preaching to Jews in Jerusalem. In a few uh, chapters, we're going to see God use Philip to spread the gospel to the Samaritans. And wow, talk about a transition. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. And yet, 
The same gospel brought them together in Christ. And then we're going to see Peter take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then after that, God is going to take a man named Saul, who was a, a zealously uh, rigorous persecutor of the church on behalf of the, uh, of the Jews... He's going to bring him to Christ, change his name to Paul, and make him a special apostle to spread the gospel to Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. Now, I want you to constantly keep that picture in mind as we see these early stages of this um, world-changing transition. This book is actually volume two of Luke's record of the life and ministry of Jesus. Volume 1 is what we call the Gospel of Luke, chronicles from before Jesus' birth through His resurrection. Now we've come into the book of Acts. Where are we now? Well, chapter 1, we saw the record of Jesus' ascension to the Father after about 45 days after His resurrection. That day, He made that final promise that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon those who believed in Him, and they would become His witnesses from Jerusalem to the remotest parts of the earth. We're still talking about Jerusalem today. Then the 11 remaining apostles and those 120 disciples who were gathered and devoting themselves to prayer as they waited for the Holy Spirit took on a project. During that time, they settled on the appointment of a man named Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot, who had defected and betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide. So they rounded out the, the 12th seat among the apostles. Chapter 2 then records that incredible day during the Feast of Pentecost. That means it was 50 days after the day that Jesus was crucified. That was the day when the Holy Spirit came upon that group. And if you recall, there were three spectacular miracles that accompanied the arrival of the Holy Spirit and drew a huge crowd in Jerusalem. Peter preached to that crowd, and all the apostles uh, followed up with countless personal conversations, and uh, the focus was all upon Jesus, who had sent the Spirit from the Father, and, and the focus was also on how the leaders of the Jews had arranged for the Romans to put Jesus to death, but God had raised Him from the dead. And Peter's call to that group of people was to repent, turn. 3,000 souls turned to Christ that day and were saved. They were baptized to proclaim their allegiance to Jesus and to show their, their affiliation with, um, with one another and, and take their public stand that they were the followers of Jesus. They immediately became uh, a, a brand new, tight-knit fellowship who daily sat under the teaching of the apostles. They celebrated the Lord's table together. They prayed diligently. They ate their regular meals together as well. Now, I'm sure those people had no understanding of all that would follow, but here we sit. I think we're about 6,000, 6,500 miles from Jerusalem. We're almost all Gentiles. And here we sit in Christ, preaching the very same message that they did. 
Now, God continued to do more miracles among the apostles. They're mentioned, but not uh, specified, most of them, in the book of Acts. And every day, we're told by the end of chapter 2, more and more people were being saved. Most of the public activity took place in the temple. And that's going to set the stage for today. Where do you get together 3,000 people in first century Jerusalem? Well, there's only one place where you could gather that many people. And it was the temple, the outer court of the temple and the area um, around the temple. And they met there to the total consternation of the leaders of the Jews. Chapter 3 records, we're not told exactly how many days, but not many days later after... Uh, chapter 2, Peter and John, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, came into the temple in the afternoon. It was the ninth hour, so about three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, one of the scheduled times for public prayers in the temple, and they went there customarily, and they healed a man who had never walked. That man was sustained, and we're going to see in our chapter a little bit later, probably next week, um, for 40 years by begging in the temple. Friends and family would carry him to this gate called Beautiful, the beautiful gate that went from the uh, court of the Gentiles to the court of the women. And there he would receive alms, uh, charity, from people who came by in the temple. Well, now, by the end of chapter 3, we have another crowd gathered. Because we have that guy who had never walked until Peter and John said, Eh, I don't have any coins today. I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And now he is, remember the phrase, walking, leaping, and praising God. He draws another large crowd for another sermon from Peter. And again, Peter explained that this miracle was all about Jesus. Didn't line up people and say, more miracles to come, just you know, to, um, you know, uh, get, get in line here. No, the whole point of his sermon was that this was done by the power of the risen Jesus Christ and the invitation to that sermon, chapter 3, verse 19. Same thing as he said in chapter 2. Therefore, repent and return. Change your mind and turn around so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now remember, they were heading to the temple for the three o'clock in the afternoon prayers. They stopped, they healed the man, and then Peter preached. I don't know how long he preached. Um, I'm sure it's only a summary that's in the book of Acts. And chapter 3 closes, and chapter 4 opens immediately after that event. It's not a logical place for a chapter break. As a matter of fact, the first word of chapter 4 continues from the last words of of chapter 3. But chapter 4 records the first instance of open persecution against the followers of Christ. The description of the events is actually pretty straightforward, but along the way, we're going to look at uh, principles that we can apply, even though we aren't apostles, We aren't Jews. We aren't in the temple. We aren't even in Jerusalem. We don't have apostles around doing spectacular miracles. And 
At least for now, we aren't being arrested for preaching the, apostle, preaching the gospel, but we're going to find out how to respond when that does come. Now, back when I was working on my outline for this week, as always, my eyes were bigger than reality would allow, I thought, eh, it'd be great to go through verse 22, and I fully intend to next week. Um, and I confess, I kind of like um, you know, murder mysteries and whodunits and stuff like that. Well, so you'll see the genre here. Here's how we might outline this. First of all, first three verses, you're under arrest. Verse four, the evidence against you is strong. Then verses five through 12, we confess. Next time, um, let's offer a deal to these guys. And then we order you to remain silent. They hadn't watched TV yet. They thought, it wasn't a right to remain silent. And then the deal is rejected. So we'll get there today, the first uh, 11 and a little bit of 12 verses that we're going to see. First of all, you are under arrest. As they were speaking. Well, I told you that connects it right away to the end of chapter, thir- of chapter 3. Um, th- these people came and interrupted what was going on. They had had enough of these guys in their temple. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Now, we've got to figure out who this group was that came and interrupted. First of all, it's the priests. Those are the ones who served in the, in the temple. They had to be descendants of the tribe of Levi. They're the ones that offered the sacrifices. Now, we're told there are 24 divisions of priests from all over the world. They rotated serving in the temple uh, in two-week shifts. So every 40, if you were a priest, out of every 48 weeks, you would serve a uh, a two-week time, and otherwise you would be at your home. And they came from all over Israel. Um, If you aren't familiar, if you want to make a connection, Luke chapter 1 verse 8 tells us about Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and it says he was serving his priestly service according to the order of his division among the priests. So it happened to be his, his turn, and God arranged that providentially. Now, so you got a group of priests, an unknown number, but pretty big crowd, and then the captain of the temple guard. Well, that refers to the guy who was the head of the security force for the temple. His name was Andy. He answered only, if, that, if you don't know Andy, well, I'll introduce you later, um, with all the ceremonial regulation that was, you know, formal activities that went on the temple, went on the temple, you couldn't just come there and freelance. So somebody had to keep order. So the captain of the temple guard answered directly to the high priest who kept, who, who kept everything in control. Uh, there were also, especially at times like Pentecost and Passover and, and Day of Atonement, there were matters of crowd control. There would be thousands more people in Jerusalem than, than usual. So it was necessary to have people who made sure things were under control. So it was a legitimate role that they had. We know that the Romans uh, allowed the peoples that they conquered to 
remain free and, and keep their own ways of doing things for the most part as long as they faithfully paid their taxes to Rome, they didn't stir up rebellions, and they didn't commit crimes. That's why the Jews could have so much autonomy in Jerusalem. But there were limits. They were not an independent nation. Israel was never a fully independent nation from 586 B.C. until 1948 A.D. That in itself is a miracle attesting to the accuracy of the Word of God. But the Jews could only do so much. Uh, They couldn't put anyone to death. That's why they had to manipulate the Romans to arrange for the Romans to crucify Jesus, but they could have their own security. So this is not Roman soldiers. This is the temple guard, Jews, coming to deal with this situation. Now, it's not hard to see why these guys were disturbed. They now have this new group of thousands of people who keep showing up every day filling up all of the public areas in the outer court of the temple and all around that part of town, but they weren't doing the things that Jews Jews normally did. Now, notice it also mentions the Sadducees. The Sadducees refers to one of the four groups of leadership among the Jews at that time. One group is called the Essenes. They were the reclusive nerdy, scholarly types who never did anything in public. You would probably not even know about the Essenes unless you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're sure glad that they hid their library up in the, up in the mountains above the, above the Dead Sea. That's the Essenes. The Zealots were the other end of the spectrum from the Essenes. They were the political activists. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They led the charge to try to get Jesus to be a king because they thought he can, he can get us out from under the thumb of Rome. It didn't work out for them at that time. Uh, one of Jesus' disciples, Simon, he's called Simon the Zealot, uh, he had been a member of the Zealot party before he came to Jesus. Then there were the ones you've heard even more about, the ultra-legalistic Pharisees. The Pharisees controlled what went on in the synagogues where most people worshipped most of the time. They hated Jesus because Jesus was constantly exposing their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy, and their teaching of salvation by works. They believed that they in themselves by their works were righteous. Now, the Sadducees were numerically much smaller than the Pharisees, but the, the Sadducees held the political power and the control of the priesthood and what went on in the temple. Theologically, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were extremely different. The Pharisees were the ultra-right-wing arch-conservatives, and the Sadducees were the theological liberals. The Sadducees um, did not accept all 22 books of the Old Testament. It's 22 in Hebrew. We'd say 39. They accepted only Genesis through Deuteronomy, the the Torah, uh, the law. They considered the rest of the Old Testament as sort of like lightweight commentary 
on the Torah. And as we'll see later, yes, they were very liberal theologically. Uh, We're going to see in the book of Acts where it mentions that they did not believe in resurrection or in angels and demons. How do you think it flew with the Sadducees when they said, Jesus rose from the dead? We know because the angel told us at the empty tomb. That didn't resonate with them. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees agreed on essentially nothing except they both hated Jesus because Jesus exposed them. The Pharisees put up with the Sadducees because they had to access the temple, and the Sadducees put up with the Pharisees because most of the people were more influenced by the Pharisees than the Sadducees, and the Sadducees lived off the offerings of the people that were controlled by the Pharisees. So it was like this peaceful coexistence, but very different groups. The Sadducees were pompous, they were aristocratic, they were wealthy by and large, and they were in complete control of the temple and the priesthood. They were the ones, for example, who gave the franchises to the people to sell sacrifices and exchange money in the temple. So eh, they weren't too thrilled with Jesus on those two days that he threw out all of their stuff. So this combined group, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, came up to them, Peter and John, and that verb tense implies uh, suddenness, And verse 2, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This group did not think this through and say, you know, something's going on here. I mean, I think there's a revival. I think we better go ask some questions. We better go listen to what these guys are saying. We We better go open our Bibles and think this through. No. They were greatly disturbed. They were in a lather. This was their temple. And in their temple, these untrained Galileans are teaching the people. How dare they? Ha rumph! That was just downright offensive. They, in their own minds, regarded themselves as the only ones qualified to do any such thing in their temple. But it was even worse than the fact that they were merely teaching, because they regarded them as unqualified to teach. This group of Sadducees understood in their thinking it was false doctrine to proclaim the resurrection from the dead. The fact that Jesus was alive, that was pretty inconvenient for them, but it didn't get them to rethink their theology. It was even worse than merely teaching. They were proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, and worse yet, in Jesus. They never got over their hatred of Jesus. They did everything within their power to get rid of Him by even cooperating with those idiotic Pharisees to work together to manipulate the Romans to crucify Jesus. They got Him crucified. Remember, then they went to the Roman authorities and they requested and received the orders that they would seal the tomb and guard it with soldiers. Problem solved, or so they thought. 
Now they're stuck not only with an empty tomb that people keep pointing out to them, but thousands of people are crowding into their temple every day listening to these annoying, uneducated Galilean apostles. They just don't have our credentials. And they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So what are you going to do? If you don't believe in resurrection, but a guy was raised from the dead, what do you do if you've had public enemy number one crucified, and yet he lives? What do you do when you have this massive swell of people every day coming into your temple and teaching things that you despise? Well, they should have been rejoicing because it was their Messiah. They should have been discussing. They should have been investigating. But no, what do they do? They burst in. They stop the, what's going on in verse 3. And they laid hands on them. That was not an ordination ceremony. Doesn't mean that kind of laid hands on them. And put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Remember, the whole incident started after three in the afternoon. So who knows how long the sermon lasted. I'm sure it's only a summary that we have in Acts. Then there was all the discussion and the apostles roaming around teaching the people. So what do you do? Well, you crash the party. You grab Peter and John. They happened to be the two primary offenders on that day. And you put them in jail. You hope that if you wait until the next day, maybe things will have died down a little bit. So number one, you're under arrest. Number two, the evidence against you is strong. Now in the minds of the temple elite and their little private police force, this was an open and shut case. These men are guilty of causing a scene in our temple, and to them, the evidence is massive. Just all these people doing this proves they got to be wrong. It's easy to think that way as long as you consider only the evidence that you want to see. And think about it, friends. To be apart from Christ is to be spiritually blind. Think of how much they had to ignore. Now, never mind all those miracles that Jesus had done. Never mind all of His teaching. Never mind the empty tomb. Ignore that miracle from, oh, I don't know, a few days ago, that, that sound like a mighty rushing wind that sounded like there was a tornado right outside the temple. Gathered all those people. You have to pretend that the, the miracle of the tongues of fire never happened, and even though you've got hundreds of people saying that it did. Just scoff at that phenomenon of 120 people proclaiming the mighty deeds of God articulately in languages they don't know. You have to just pay no attention to the fact that these people that are following Jesus now, whom you consider a problem, they are so full of joy... They are so generous, they are so loving, and they're beloved by everyone who comes in contact with them. Well, you also have to ignore that guy that was crippled from birth, going around walking and leaping and praising God. How do you handle that? Well, just like the moon landing, it was a hoax, I'm sure. 
all these men could see that this was a problem in their temple. And these thousands of exuberant followers of Jesus were a threat to their control, their power, their position. They were experiencing the success of the power of the gospel, the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. They were experiencing the power of the gospel, and to them that was proof of guilt of these gospel preachers and these people running around in their temple. So, verse 4, what's this abundant evidence? It says, but many of those who had heard the word, or who had heard the message, believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's an interesting detail that Luke puts in here, and we're going to see a string of details as he recounts the growth of the followers of Christ. Remember, just a few days earlier, 3,000 souls were saved and baptized after that first time Peter preached. We're told at the end of chapter 2, the numbers kept swelling. God was adding to their number day by day as many as would be saved. Now, it's even more. The word for men, here in verse 4, is not the generic word anthropos that means man like in mankind. This is the word that means adult males. So now he says there were about 5,000 men. And who knows how many women and children. Uh, That means that in Jewish culture, you now have the heads of 5,000 households included in this fellowship. Now to an honest Bible-believing Jew... This should be cause for unbridled celebration. This was proof that the Messiah had indeed come. This is proof that the kingdom program of God is upon us. But to the power-hungry, somewhat paranoid Sadducees, it's just more evidence that these incorrigible people are all crazy. They all need to be stopped and they need to get out of our temple. We're in charge here. So you're under arrest. The evidence against you is strong. So what do you do? Well, we confess. They didn't even have to be taken off into separate rooms and interrogated for eight hours. Now surely, those who arrested them thought, you know, a a night in the slammer might knock some sense into this loudmouthed Peter and his sidekick John. Maybe if we make an example of them, it'll help quash this uprising of deluded people. Well, cue the next scene. The next scene takes place in the chambers of the, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a, a group of 70, put an asterisk on 70, there are a few others in there. They're almost all Sadducees, and they are the supreme court of the Jews. So, verses 5 and 6. On the next day, the day after they were arrested, Their rulers and elders and scribes, that's the Sanhedrin, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Now, the Sanhedrin was officially 70, actually 71, because uh, they were headed by whoever was the current high priest. He served as the chairman. And if there was a tie in a vote, he was the tiebreaker. 
It's like the U.S. Senate. We have a hundred senators from 50 different states with the vice president reside, uh, presiding and breaking ties when there is a tie. Now, if you, if you work back through the Gospels, you, some of these names will be familiar. You'll remember that the actual high priest at that time was Caiaphas. But before Caiaphas was the high priest, his father-in-law, Annas, had been in that office for over a decade. Now, the Romans maintained the authority to, um, to change the high priests, and they had dumped Annas, but Annas, having been in power for so long, he cleverly arranged uh, for, to have a place of honor like the high priest emeritus, if you will, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, became that guy. So at 70, plus the high priest, well, and then you got the high priest emeritus. And then you have John and Alexander. And they were other members who followed in the line of, uh, of Annas. So they had no problem with a number bigger than 70 as long as they were all sycophants. And they all were. They were all going to come do the bidding of the Sadducees. So this group, in their chamber, the chamber of the Sanhedrin, they met in a circle in in a large hall. I don't know if there was 70 individual chairs around, or maybe they made it two or three uh, deep, but there was a space in the middle where those who were charged with crimes or other offenses could be questioned, and they were literally surrounded for the questioning. Now, we know this took place in the spring, and it was a great day for grilling apostles. So they started. Chapter 4, verse 7. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Man, I I do not have Peter's um, patience. I would have said, Did you listen to anything I said? Have you paid any attention at all? Have you listened to the guy that's walking and leaping and praising God? Come on, guys. No, didn't do that. By the way, the Greek sentence puts great emphasis on the, the plural pronoun you. Only two of the 12 apostles were being questioned, but it's clear the questioners were holding them and by extension all 12 of them responsible for doing this. How have you done this? This what? Well, I think, he's referring to the, I think they're referring to the whole situation. They were not about to consider that this was being done by the hand of God. In their minds, this was just an assault on their power and their position. The Sanhedrin was just like your run-of-the-mill, garden-variety um, uh, evolutionist. Okay, We're ruling out the answer. We know this can't be God. Now let's explain the answer to the question. That's exactly what they're doing. We know this isn't of God because you're messing around in our temple. We don't like that. We want you to stop. That's kind of the attitude that they had. We hold you responsible for these unauthorized gatherings in our temple. So as I said, it's blindness. How much did they have to ignore? Couldn't they remember Jesus on the cross? Three hours of darkness? 
Didn't they remember the veil in the temple, their temple, being torn in two miraculously from top to bottom? Didn't they hear about the testimonies of those people who were raised from the dead that day? Couldn't they remember the empty tomb that kept being pointed out to them? Didn't they remember that sound like the mighty rushing wind that raced through all of Jerusalem and gathered the whole city together? The testimonies about the tongues of fire, the the unknown languages? And then what about the everyday testimonies of the 3,000 people who were baptized? And the guy walking and leaping and praising God. Did they just think that was an elegant hoax? Well, they didn't care. It was just, you're messing with our temple. We don't like that. So that one question, verse 7, by what power or in what name if you've done this, that pushed Peter's play button. He was moved, he was guided, he was empowered by uh, the Holy Spirit, just as that Jesus had promised, you will know what to say when they come after you. And he again speaks directly on behalf of himself and John, but as well, he speaks for the rest of the twelve and all of those thousands of people who so greatly disturbed the Sadducees and their ilk. So, what did he say? We'll circle back and pick up some of this again next time, but let's look at verses 8 through 12. Then Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which the, was rejected by the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, we're not going to get any farther, but remember, this is the first open persecution of Christian in the book of Acts. Not going to be the last. And others are going to be worse. But we can begin to see some patterns based on how spirit-filled people, apostle or otherwise, respond in a situation like that. Now, you know what would happen today. Somebody was arrested like that. There would immediately be the protests, the lawsuits, the shouting. But would you look... I think there are some principles we can understand here. They did not fight against the authorities. They didn't demand their rights. They didn't protest. They did not go on Twitter to drum up support for their cause. They did not complain about being in jail overnight. Now, I'm also pretty sure they didn't love it. But they didn't fight against the ones who persecuted them. They didn't fight. They spoke. They spoke truth. They spoke it boldly. So secondly, we see, they spoke respectfully. Notice how Peter addresses them. Rulers and elders 
of the people. That's the proper way to address the Sanhedrin. I think I would have gone all Jesus on them. You whitewashed sepulchers. You, you full of dead men's bones. Now, they didn't. They just, no name calling, just stating facts. You want to know how we did it? You want to know in whose name we did it? Well, we'll tell you. They were bold, but they were not disrespectful. Would you notice how immediately they turned the attention to Jesus? They're not saying, we're innocent. We didn't do anything wrong. They, they could have made a case. Our Lord Jesus said, this is my Father's house that you're making into a, a, a robber's den. There are lots of things they could have said, but they just turned the attention to Jesus. Peter was very careful about pointing to the facts of the situations. Are you upset about a benefit done to a sick man? Do you really want to know how he was made well? And would you notice he turned the attention to Jesus and then to the Word of God? Next time, I'll circle back and we'll, I'll show you how significant it was that he quoted Psalm 118. But by now you should see the pattern in Acts. In every situation, the attention is always turned to, this is what God said in His Word, and this is about His Son, Jesus. So put a mental bookmark there. We'll come back. I don't care if you read farther all the way through verse 22, where I hoped to get to this morning. But I want to be bold and suggest, how about memorizing a verse? If somebody wants to say, well, you know, how, how do you, where does it say that Jesus is the only way? There's lots of ways to God. Well, maybe you've already nailed John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Okay? Here's another one. Go ahead and memorize this. Acts 4.12 and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, it'll be tempting next time we open Acts to have you stand and recite that from memory without any prompts on the screen. I'm too nice. I probably won't do that. But let's take our cue from Peter and John. Even while we are or even when it comes that we are unjustly punished, even when we are misunderstood, falsely accused, we can always turn the attention, the conversation to God and His Word and His Son. God will give you wisdom to do that. Oh, and by the way, can't stop at Ephesians 4.12 and say, Oh, <laughs> and do you have that salvation? It is found in no one else. There is only one way by which we must be saved. Oh, how wonderful to have God's forgiveness. How wonderful to be His child by adoption. And by this time, they have the Holy Spirit, who we are told bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. They understood this was all brand new in Christ. How wonderful to have His Holy Spirit to help us understand His Word. And how marvelous to be stewards of the greatest message of all. 
If you don't have that salvation, today is the very best day of the rest of humanity's time on earth to give your life to Jesus Christ and be saved and be born again. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your glorious grace to us in Christ, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you now for giving us this very same message as was on the lips of your apostles in those days. Send us out from this place as stewards of that wonderful message. And please arrange opportunities that we may speak that truth in love to those who need the Savior. And we know that for people to be saved, it will require their eyes being opened, and that is the work of your Spirit. So help us, we pray, to be good stewards of our part, spreading the message, and grant that there would be much fruit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.